And if you have your Bibles and hope you do, open up to Mark chapter 9. We are continuing in our series through this book. uh, And it's a series we're calling Reintroducing Jesus for those for whom Jesus is not familiar or for those for whom he is too familiar. So we're going to get right to it. Last week in the end of Mark chapter 8, we saw Jesus pose a question to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter rightly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, God's anointed king. And then right after that, he wrongly rejects the idea of a king who dies to establish God's kingdom. And so Jesus, after rebuking what he describes as really Satan-like thinking, thinking that avoids any kind of self-denying suffering of a cross. He then calls all who would follow him to pick up their own crosses. Essentially, Jesus warns that a similar kind of shame, even death, at least persecution, awaits anyone who would follow Him. But then, as we begin chapter 9, He gives a little preview of coming attractions, for lack of a better phrase. He says this verse, that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There's entire books written about this verse, disagreements about what this verse means. Scholars kind of question or disagree about what Jesus means by kingdom of God and and who's going to be alive and, and what is going on here. Some believe that Jesus is speaking of the cross itself, the victory of the cross, if you will. And Paul describes the victory of the cross in this way in Colossians saying that after Jesus was nailed to the cross with all the sins that he would redeem that he had disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing triumphing over them in him so he says victory so some say that's what Jesus is talking about when the kingdom comes Some argue that Jesus is referring to the future fall of Jerusalem that would come in 40-ish years, around A.D. 70. The temple would be destroyed. The whole city would really be razed by Rome. And still others argue that Jesus in this verse is talking about what happens in Mark chapter 9 here. Traditionally, a moment that's described as the transfiguration which is a really big word to talk about change in form. It is the one moment on earth where Jesus' human form transforms and changes to display the fullness of His divine glory in a moment. Now, without doubt, it's a very significant moment in the history of Jesus' ministry. There isn't a moment like it that takes place in His three years of ministry. It's similar to his baptism in that it serves as a kind of a moment of divine confirmation that Jesus is who he says he is. But again, the text kind of sets it up and gives some context in a way that we'd probably ignore if we didn't stop and look at it. If you look at verse 2 in 
chapter 9, it says that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So he takes them up this mountain, just these three guys. And it feels like a kind of meaningless detail until you begin to see that Matthew also records very deliberately after six days, he takes them up. And Luke kind of implies, he says, after about a week, he takes them up. And like, why make that note? Well, since the seven days of creation in the book of Genesis, six days has always been understood biblically as kind of the amount of time to prepare for something, particularly prepare for a holy event of some kind. Probably more specifically, this Six days alludes to the experience of Moses in the book of Exodus, who was also called up to the top of a high mountain, Mount Sinai, into the presence of God to receive the law. And Exodus 24 records it this way. In verse 15 it says, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. This will also be the moment where, where Moses asks if he can see God's glory, and he shoves him in the rock, and the glory of God passes before him. In addition, this moment, the six days, this mountaintop experience likely alludes to Elijah, the prophet's experience, when after wiping out the prophets of Baal, he runs in fear and ultimately is led by God to, again, the top of a mountain where God meets him in his fear. And you see that in 1 Kings 19. So mountains are familiar. Meeting his people on mountains is something common that God does. It is where his people come into his presence. And in many ways, I would argue that Sunday mornings are intended to be kind of a mountaintop experience where we come uniquely into the presence of God with God's people in a way that we don't typically do on the other six days of the week. And I wondered this week, like, what if every Sunday felt like a mountaintop experience? Really, regardless of how it feels, is that what it's supposed to be? I would argue that few would neglect the gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day if they expected to have a mountaintop experience. I wonder if this is what we expect. At any point during the week, during the six days prior to the Lord's Day, do we think expectantly about communing with God and His people. That this is unique, that this is special, that I'm going to engage and encounter Jesus. Do we expect more than good music, more than good sermon, more than just good fellowship? Do we come expecting to enter uniquely into the presence of Jesus? Do we come to the mountain expecting to hear Jesus regardless of who or what is being preached? Do we come 
hoping to be touched by Jesus regardless of who's actually there to touch. How do we approach it? Well, Jesus literally takes his disciples up to a mountain. In one of the Gospels, he says he is taking them up to pray, to commune with God. And as they arrive at the top of the mountain, something unique happens. It says at the end of verse 2 into verse 3 and 4 that Jesus was transfigured before him. And his clothes, so Jesus physically is changing. You can imagine them seeing They become radiant, intensely white as no one earth could bleach them, so it's probably difficult for them to even see and look at Jesus. And it says, and there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So mysteriously, inexplicably, but really visibly, something happens. Jesus is changed, and the glorious king that he is is revealed in that moment. Peter later describes this moment in his second epistle. He says in chapter 1, verse 16, in defending his ministry, that they didn't follow cleverly devised myths when they made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he goes on, as we'll see, to describe this moment. He says, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty, In this moment, and majesty is not a word that we use very often. It's an old word, but it it speaks of power, it speaks of splendor, it speaks of the excellence of something. It's majestic. In this case, we're speaking of Jesus. And we know majesty is also a royal title, right? Your majesty. It's the acknowledgement of a ruler or king's sovereignty of their authority. I think the Latin phrase is greatness of dignity. The majesty of God is His role and His position and His power, but also His beauty and His glory and His splendor. All these things in one. I think it's amazing how naturally we describe things as great, whether it be a Sunday morning or or elsewhere, but particularly maybe a Sunday morning. We think about what was great about that assembly, what was great about that experience, what was great. I wonder how often we leave dwelling on the greatness of Jesus. How often do we dwell intentionally on just the majesty of Jesus? And why would we do that? What is so important? Well, the Bible is pretty clear. If you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says that, that God's purpose for all of this, His whole plan before creation, His purpose for our lives was to conform us to the image of His Son, to look like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul also teaches that this transformation into Jesus as we are conformed into the image of Jesus, as we look like Jesus, takes place through beholding Jesus. The more we behold His glory, it says, we are changed from degree 
the more we appreciate and we savor who He is, we become changed. And so when the Bible says, which it says often, set your minds on things above. When the Bible says to think about what is true and what is pure and what is lovely. When the Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How can that not be a call to look at Jesus? To behold His glory. To spend time thinking and meditating on who He is and what He has done. In his book, Seeing and Savoring Jesus, John Piper writes this, The healing of the soul begins by restoring the glory of God to its flaming and all-attracting place at the center. He writes that we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is, so, there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. Beholding glory. Looking at glory. And so I ask you to consider what or who you look at or behold most. What or who do you look at most to be centered to be comforted, to be inspired. There are so many other things to look at. And I think sometimes we are looking at earthly things to satisfy us and fulfill us, to ultimately save us. And it's been described often that we use things. And some of these things are very good. People that are very good. And we look at them as functional saviors we may confess a particular savior but as we live and how we live demonstrates who our true savior is what we are truly looking at not depending on god but depending on someone or something else to give us identity and to give us security and to give us significance to ultimately save us from the hell we imagine we'd be in without that thing or person These idols preoccupy our minds and they consume our time and our resources and they make us feel good and somehow they even make us feel righteous. And whether we realize it or not, they begin to control us and that which we worship begins to enslave us. And God warns us about this. He's like, look, if you look at any other idol, something happens to you. In Psalm 115, he basically says, look, those who make idols, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Like, the shorthand of that is we become what we worship. We become what we behold. And it could be argued that you begin to look like what you're looking at. So what are we savoring most, beholding most? And these disciples are invited to behold Jesus and the glory that He exists for us in right now. Well, 
They are invited to look deeply into the face of King Jesus, but that's not all they're going to be told to do. They're going to be told to listen to him too. Which seems like when you're looking at someone, you're also listening to them, but if you're a parent, you know full well that's not the truth. A fear-filled Peter responds to seeing this display, and he says in verse 5, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. This is great. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Verse 6 says, for he didn't know what to say. So he's just talking. He's terrified. Like, uh, what are we supposed to do here? And before he can make any tents or do anything for what he sees, it says in verse 7 that a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Elijah and Moses disappear. Peter again references this moment in his second epistle. He says in chapter 1 of the second epistle, verse 17, for when he received honor and glory, so they behold his majesty, and then it says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's talking about this moment where God spoke about his Son. So you have the presence of God the Father overshadowing the mountain with a cloud, very similar to, to when he spoke to Moses. It's very similar also to Jesus' baptism where the voice came out of the heavens and it said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. But unlike the baptism, the voice adds something else, which is, listen to Him. Listen to Jesus. Now, it's important who Moses is and who Elijah is. Moses was the one who led Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, received the law, wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And then you have Elijah, one of, if not the greatest prophet, who never died, but was whisked away in a chariot of fire to heaven. So these guys represent really the entire Old Testament. Moses or the law and the prophets or the writings. The law and the prophets. Now the writer of Hebrews says something very interesting in the beginning of his epistle, verse 1. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, because lots of prophets came, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Because lots of people said lots of things, and God did speak through them, but God is now speaking through Jesus. In other words, the command to listen to Him, to listen to Jesus in the presence of Moses and in the presence of Elijah, in the presence of the law and the prophets, he says, look, Jesus is not 
uh, uh, separation from what was old. He's a continuation from what was old, and he is a revelation of something new. We listen to everything God has said through the lens of Christ. Christ Himself taught, it all pointed to Me. When He had resurrected and He was walking with two disciples in Luke 24 on a village towards Emmaus, and they're sad because they didn't know what had happened. They didn't expect Jesus to die. and They didn't know He rose from the dead yet. It says Jesus opened the Bible and He taught them from Moses and all the prophets how everything pointed to Him. It's always been about Jesus. The Father wants His people to revere the words of Jesus more than the words of any other person, any other organization, any other cause in the world. God the Father directs all of our attention to the person and work and words of Jesus Christ. And He is not concerned about being eclipsed by Jesus. For it's through Jesus that the person and the will of the Father is most fully revealed. Like we talk about, and the world is talking about, oh, Jesus is very God-like. But what perhaps is a better description to say is God is very Christ-like. The fullness of God. Jesus says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are one. The Father commands us to listen to Jesus that the voice of Jesus might direct every aspect of our lives. And so as a community, we are to listen to the words of Christ more than the words of culture, more than the words of families, more even than the words that come up from ourselves. You go, well, what what kinds of words, what kinds of things did Jesus say? Well, one of the first things He said was repent. It's like the first thing He preached, which means He's talking about sin. He's talking about going the wrong direction. He's talking about obedience and submission to the will of the Father. He said, believe. He said things like, you're going to suffer. Expect it. He said things like, love. Even love your enemies. He said things like, forgive. He said things like, trust me. Ask me. Know me. And he's just told his disciples, look, I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise again. And the next thing that is said, the Father says, listen to him. Because they're struggling to believe what Jesus has said. Our perspectives. So think about that. Our perspectives. How we perceive the world. How we perceive one another. How we perceive ourselves is intended to be shaped by the words of Christ. The voice of Christ. Paul writes this in Colossians, which perhaps brings new meaning to you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the Word of Christ saturate you. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, 
So everything is in the name of the Lord Jesus, he says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So it perhaps goes without saying, but I'll still say it. There are a lot of voices speaking today. We have more access to more voices than we've ever had in the history of the planet. Words everywhere, counselors everywhere, voices everywhere. And I fear that there are a lot of voices that we allow to dwell in us perhaps too richly or more richly than we do the words of Christ. Voices that shape our perspective, voices that shape what we think and what we see and what we feel and what we believe. Excuse me, believe. And so I just ask you a simple question for you to get a little more personal. Whose voice do you start your day with? I know all too often I'm looking to this first thing in the morning. Who's contacted me? What's going on in the news today? How do we start our day? Whose voice do we begin our day listening to? And what voice do we spend most of our day being saturated by? Because I believe just as the faces that we look at most shape what we look like, so who we listen to shapes how we see and how we feel and even how we ourselves sound. And knowing what Proverbs 18 teaches us, that life and death are in the power of the tongue, if it was written today, perhaps it would say power of the tongue and the fingertips, Perhaps we should listen to the words of our Savior most so that we are surely speaking the words of life most. And so Jesus invites us to behold Him and the Father commands us to listen to Him. But the disciples eventually come down from the mountain. And just as a side note, I think it's incredibly important to realize that most of the disciples' time, at least if you just take the Gospel of Mark, but really all the Gospels, most of the disciples' time with Jesus doesn't happen on mountaintops. Most of our weeks don't happen on mountaintops. Most of it, most of our communion with God takes place in the mundane of everyday life. And I love mountaintops. I'm sure you love mountaintops, those experiences, and there's probably some sprinkled in your life. You're like, oh, I remember this, this moment when God, man, there's a moment of grace where He struck me, where I met Him, it was powerful. But I think it's foolish to live a life in pursuit of that divine fix to get us through every day. I think it's perhaps dangerous to seek out that experience because when you don't find it every day, I fear you'll leave unsatisfied in your faith, critical of the church, or worse. What I've seen oftentimes, when people don't have a perpetual excitement, a perpetual mountaintop, they start to feel distant from God. They kind of have this void like, oh, I just know my relationship with God feels kind of weak, and so they stuff some new things in it to make it feel alive. And guess what some of those things are? Legalism. Mysticism activism, a lot of isms, because they feel like something's happening and they're doing something and it is not 
the mountaintop that you want to be on. The Lord brings us to the tops of peaks and he brings us into valleys. And to, to be clear, most of it's valleys. But as we go through these valleys that happen between the mountaintops, we are to be looking at Jesus. We are to be listening to Jesus. We are to be trusting and thinking and talking about Jesus. Mark continues in verse 9. After they come down from the mountaintop, they're going back to normal life. They're going back to, you know, regular Jesus who still heals, but not the glorious picture that they saw says that Jesus charges them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So as his pattern has been, Jesus kind of instructs his disciples to not share what had happened on the mountain. He doesn't want anything to derail his path to the cross. But Jesus didn't say, never talk about this he just said not yet he wanted to ensure that what he had already said must happen did happen but then he says like after i've risen from the dead go for it seemingly implying and encouraging them like after resurrection tell everyone about this moment See, there is a time to to spend meditating and dwelling and looking at Jesus, beholding Him, savoring Him, enjoying Him. And there's a time to listen to Him, to, to understand what He calls you to do and commands you to do. And then there's a time to talk about Jesus, to share Jesus. Following, think about this, the glory of the resurrection It could be argued that the disciples devoted themselves to talking about little else. Nothing compared. And even though they would later write the Gospels, I'm pretty certain they're like, hey, remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? That was a really cool moment. No, they're like, resurrection! Jesus alive! We saw Him. We touched Him. He's returning again. Nothing compared with resurrection. Talking about Jesus, speaking about what he had done. This is the the one who was the word, the one who called himself the truth. Like talking about him is the way you keep people from wandering into meaningless stuff. This is why Paul writes in his last letter to his favorite pastor at his favorite church. He says, look, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus who is judge of the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Talk about Jesus. Proclaim Jesus. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And he says this, which we've been there, we are there, we will be there. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And we have more access to more teachers to meet our passions than we ever have before. And we'll turn away from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. But as for you, 
Always be sober-minded. Endure suffering and do the work of an evangelist. What is that? The primary work of an evangelist, like evangel, the gospel, is to proclaim Jesus. Now, think about this. Even today, there's nothing that compares to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing. And yet, it doesn't seem like the resurrection of Jesus is getting much airtime anymore. Most think it just didn't happen, but believers themselves talk about it on Easter, and that's about it. But the resurrection is incredible, unworldly, impossible, and amazing. More than anything, we should be talking about Jesus, and that means talking about basic things, the reconciliation of the cross, Him dealing with sin, and the resurrection of the dead, Him giving new life and the return of our King. Reconciliation, resurrection, and return. Constantly talking about that. Telling ourselves, telling our children, telling our neighbors, telling our community. Here's the deal. This is true. Most people spend most of their time, or at least their best time, talking or debating about such lesser things. Not totally unimportant things, just lesser things. And it's noteworthy how often Paul charges God's people in his letters to reject foolish controversies, to avoid stupid arguments, and to have nothing to do with meaningless quarrels. Now, no one is suggesting that we talk of Jesus only, but just that we talk of Jesus mostly. And that we pray as we talk. The words of the psalmist who says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Our passage ends with some basic insights into how the disciples are thinking as they've heard all this and experienced all this. In verse 11, it says, They asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? What, what, what about Elijah? What's going on? And he says to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Again, kind of a strange couple verses that you might skip if we didn't stop for a second and just end with an explanation here. The mountaintop experience has really caused the disciples to think differently. They've gone from resurrection is crazy to starting to think about it. What do you mean? They're listening to Jesus' words. They're trying to understand when before they're like, that's crazy talk. Now it's like, okay... Maybe it's true, and what does it mean? They've accepted Jesus as the Messiah, and even though they're starting, okay, he's the Messiah, they start going back into their old Jewish Sunday school lessons and going, 
okay, wait a second, we knew that Elijah was going to come before the Messiah, and so they wonder aloud, like, okay, isn't Elijah supposed to come, Jesus? Like, isn't he supposed to come before you? Where is he? He went to a chariot. He's not dead. Is he going to fly down in a chariot now? What's going on? And Jesus says, yes, that's true. Elijah does come. Isaiah chapter 40 foretold that a voice in the wilderness would come to prepare the way. And Jesus says, and that guy has come. He was John the Baptist, whom the Jews rejected and they killed. And so therefore, disciples, you shouldn't be surprised if they killed the one who was preparing the way, they're going to kill the one and reject the one whom he was announcing. Why? Because that's how it was written. Now, if you go back to Isaiah 40 at some point, you'll see that the primary job of the voice in the wilderness was to do one main thing. It was prepare the way, but a certain way he did that was to call people back to the trustworthiness of God's Word. Trust the Word as it is written. Trust the Word as God has promised And so this is where Jesus is turning. He's like, yes, that is going to happen. Yes, this is going to happen. He reminds them, it's written twice, right? It's written. It's written. It's written. It's written in God's Word. You see, more than anything, Jesus wants us to be a people that is governed and guided by the Word of God more than anything. It's great. I've realized that, that Google is not the place to find answers as it is the place to find someone who agrees with what you think. We are to be governed by the Word of God and let that shape what we think. We see Jesus, like if you want to, how do I behold Jesus? By reading his word. We hear Jesus by reading his word. We speak Jesus by preaching his word. Consider the words of Peter, right? He, he ends in that second epistle, he's referring to this place. He's already said, look, the majestic glory came and, and we heard the voice. And then he says in verse 19, after saying, we heard the voice, we were on the mountain. And in verse 9 he says, and we have the prophetic word. We have the word more fully confirmed. Like it's true to which you would do well to pay attention to. What? The word. As a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. In the book of Revelation, the morning star is identified as King Jesus. And in the sky, if you didn't know, the morning star is actually a meteorological thing. It's the planet Venus. They call Venus the night light of the sky because it's the one closest to the sun and usually it's the last star seen right before the sun actually rises. They call it the morning star. In many ways, that star signals the end of darkness. That star signals the coming of a new day. And until morning comes, Peter says, until the darkness dissipates, until that final star appears, we have the Word of God to light our path through the darkness. And so I would just 
commend all of you, brothers and sisters, in these dark times, let us be guided primarily not by what we feel, but by what is written. Let us not be guided primarily by even what we think, but what is written. Not by what they say, but what is written. Not by what we imagine, but what is written. Not by even what I want, but what is written. And certainly not by what I fear, but what is written. We are a people of the book because we believe it's living and active and sharper and is the very words of Christ. Let that be the thing and person who governs you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift to us, first and foremost, of your Son. Lord, I pray that every time we gather as your people, it will feel like a mountaintop experience. We will expect to come into your presence. We will plan to meet you. And we will behold your glory. And as we behold your glory, I pray we will be changed from the inside out. That our hearts will be transformed. That we'll begin to look more like Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we will listen to your Son's voice. That his voice will be more supreme than all other voices that are in this culture right now. Voices that we hear in our world. Voices that we hear in our own homes. Voices even that we hear coming up from our own flesh. Lord, let the voice of Jesus dominate all of them. And then, Father, let the things we talk about most, not only but most, be You, Jesus. The reconciliation that comes from the cross. The resurrection from the dead. And the return of you, Jesus, as King. We look forward to that day. It's in the name of Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen.